Welcome, and thanks for joining us for this episode of the C3 Church Podcast. You're about to listen into a message from one of our gatherings. To find out more about our community, where we gather both in person and online, and how to get involved, head to cfreechurch.ca. Now, let's listen into a message from a recent service. My name is Kimberly. Uh, along with my husband, Josiah, we are associate pastors at C3 Church across our locations in Kelowna and Vernon and Revelstoke. We hold the fort down in Vernon. Don't feel too sorry for us. It's okay there. Uh, but driving here this morning was just one of those, like, take your breath away gasp. The beauty here is unprecedented. Um, I lived in Revelstoke for four years, so, like, I'm part Revelstokean, just a tiny little percent, like a, like 1% maybe. Um, so I still feel at home when I return here. Anyways, greetings from my husband, Josiah. He and my older two rascals are uh, in Kelowna this morning. And good luck to the kids' team with my two-year-old. Thank you. Yeah, he just started kids recently, and he's, yeah, he's good. Mm -hmm. It's fine. He has no will of his own whatsoever. Um, Anyways, anyways, weird. Don't know where that came from, Olsen family. Um, So good. It was, like, supposed to actually be a compliment, but I realized it didn't sound like that. So if we could just, like, rewind a little bit, and I'm not going to look at my sister-in-law for the rest of the service. Um, We are in the middle of a series. Actually, we're probably at the end of a series now that I've come to realize it is the end of the month. uh, Called um, Everything Costs Something. Or no, Nothing Comes for Free. Thank you, media. (laughs) We're in a series called Nothing Comes for Free, and I don't know about you guys, but I have been sufficiently uh, challenged in uh, certain areas in a very good way, uh, perspective enlightened. So if you have missed any of the messages, I encourage you to catch up on them. Uh, But today I'm going to get right into scripture um, because I am both excited and... um, nervous about sharing with you today what we're talking about. I just sort of feel like a scary importance to it. Um, So I need to read scripture right away so I at least get that right. If I screw everything else up, if we read scripture, we're going home with something. Praise you, Jesus. So we are going to look at 1 Peter 1, 17 17 through 19, uh, starting in the NIV version. You can read it in the Bible in the sky behind me. This is written uh, by Peter, believe it or not. Peter was one of Jesus' close followers. This is written about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross and, and rose again. And Peter is now in Rome, and he is writing to a whole bunch of churches, uh, dispersed Christians that are kind of spread out everywhere. So he is sending them this, uh, this letter to try and encourage them. And he goes like this. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. There goes a note from my Bible. Hopefully hopefully not an important one. Just joking. Um, I'm going to read this in one more version because I know that first version was a bit of a mouthful, but we're going to read this in one more version to get a broader perspective and then we'll move on. You call upon a father who judges each person's work without favoring one another. So live your lives as strangers here. Have the highest respect for God. 
The blood of Christ set you free from an empty way of life, the way of life that was handed down to you by your own people long ago. You know that you are not bought with things that can pass away like silver or gold. Instead, you are bought by the priceless blood of Christ. Good job, Peter. Amazing. Uh, The title for my message this morning is Houses and High Respect. Houses and High Respect. Would you join me as I just pray one more time? Holy Spirit, I just, I acknowledge that you're here and I am so grateful for that. I ask God that as I, um, as I speak over these next few minutes, God, that your truth would be heard. That no matter what I say, that each person here would um, receive something from you, whether a verse or a picture or a story, whatever it is, God, but that your truth that has the power to set people free, to change lives, to heal, that that would be what comes across today. God, we just give you permission to do whatever you want to do. Please stay with us. Thank you for being here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, to start us off today, I want to set a foundation of remembering this powerful thing that we all have access to called redemption. In the passage at hand, uh, Peter reminds us that we were redeemed from an empty way of life. Now, has anyone seen those big billboards that say, we buy ugly houses? They're a a bit more common in the States. But there's a huge campaign. It's been going on for like 25 years or more. And they have these huge signs that say, we buy ugly houses. And this guy named Ken D'Angelo invented it way back in the day. And they go around and they buy beat up, ugly, run down houses. And they fix them up and resell them. Uh, And during my Bible study uh, this month, this uh, slogan came up, came to mind, this we buy ugly houses slogan. And I thought to myself, this could definitely work as a metaphor for what God has done for us. So, and bear with me here. I know it's not the perfect metaphor, but if you will, God has been in the business of buying ugly houses for a very long time. Right? The Bible refers to followers of Christ as temples for the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6-9. So in other words, we are houses for God, houses for God's Spirit. And when we were built by God, when he put our blueprints together, when we were designed by God, we were designed to function and to be taken care of in a certain way. Right? There's a certain time that we should winterize. There's a certain time we should vacuum. I don't do this stuff, okay? So I don't even know what these times are. But I know there's times you're supposed to be doing things, and I can tell when we haven't. That's when I know. I can tell when we haven't. But it's like the moment that we decided as a house that we didn't really want an owner, that we really didn't want a caretaker, or we didn't really want our designer to like be telling us what to do all the time, telling us how to take care of ourselves, calling the shots, The moment we severed the connection between us and the perfect caretaker, our God, we actually began to deteriorate. We actually started the journey to become an ugly house, if you will. Right? Dust started to build, mold got in the windows, maybe rodents in the rafters. But we got jealous of one another. Right? We let offense and unforgiveness linger. We, I don't know, Maybe sin started leaving stains on the walls, or maybe got depressed and hopelessness, and it sort of darkened our interior. And it's true that for some of us, perhaps things still looked good on the outside for a while, especially if the conditions were right and the weather was good. 
But the truth is, without our designer, without our caretaker, we eventually become ugly houses. And yet, still, God decided that these ugly houses were all worth saving. We're all still valuable and precious to him, even though we're the one who cut off the connection in the first place. And it's like I imagine God going around looking to see um, what ugly houses he can buy. Can he buy back as many of them as he possibly can and make them new again? Design them to be functioning again, beautify them again. But the price that God paid for these ugly houses was not cash or a check or a mortgage with the bank with the best rate, which I have no idea which bank that is at the moment. No, he bought us back by the blood of his son, his only son, Jesus Christ. This was the currency used to buy us back. This is how we were redeemed. Now, the word redeemed, which is continuously used in the Bible, uh, when Peter is using it in this passage, he's actually using a word, uh, it was a term used to describe the purchase of a slave's freedom. Um, uh, a word used during the slave markets of the first century, that if you went to buy a slave to set them free, you would be redeeming them. And Peter decided that this was the absolute best analogy about what God had done for us. Peter didn't go with my we buy ugly houses analogy, but that's fine. But we were slaves, in essence. We are in bondage to comparison or addiction or success or fear or whatever it is. We were slaves to what ultimately was an empty way of life. And God chose to pay the price to set us free. And not only that, we have the promise of eternal salvation. We have the promise of meeting Jesus face to face one day. And we have the guarantee that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in 1 John 3, 2. So we receive all of this freely, but it doesn't mean there wasn't a cost. Right? It was free for us, but it was not free for him. You and I, we cost the blood of the Son of God. And if you are like, if you are a Christian, like the people Peter is writing to, it means you've accepted this payment. Right? It means that you have chosen to accept the price that Jesus paid for him. So you have received his forgiveness and you've transferred ownership, the, the title deed of your house, back over to God. And now God is your friend. He is your father, your brother, family, but also your leader. Right? You've been redeemed. Right? This house ain't ugly no more. I debated making you all do that this morning, but I feel like I can only push you so much, so this house ain't ugly no more. But the reason I've taken a bit of time to talk about redemption this morning, to remind us of redemption, whether this concept to you is brand new or that this is just a sort of remembering exercise, is that it is absolutely vital to our faith that we remember the reason why we do the things we do and why we choose to live the way we live. Because if not, if we lose the why behind the what, then, then when we follow the guidelines and the stories and the principles in this book, we're, we're simply reducing it to following a list of rules. Right? If we forget the reason why we try and abide by certain things in our faith, then, then we reduce everything here to simply another religion. And the world doesn't need another religion. Jesus didn't go to the cross for another religion. 
But he went to the cross so we could live free in a broken world, so we could reject the distorted ways of thinking and living that got us enslaved and messed up in the first place. Ephesians 4.22 reminds us not to return to our former way of life. And when I read this passage in Peter's letter, I can almost feel his heart as if he's saying, look, our way of life was ultimately so empty before Christ. It was aimless. But through Jesus, that changed. And we weren't redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus so we could go on living just like we did before. So we could go on living in a way that is going to enslave us again. He came to redeem us so we could live differently. And I believe that's what uh, Peter is implying when he says, when he refers to us as foreigners here on earth. Some versions of the Bible say strangers. Some say aliens, which make for good titles, but... But meaning that in many ways, we are like strangers or people living away from their homeland. We're we're never actually supposed to truly feel like we fit in here. We're never quite settled until Jesus returns and he makes things right and he fully establishes his kingdom. We are different. And I think it's it's a super important practice for us as Christians to maybe take a regular time of our year to sort of evaluate how comfortable we are in the world we're living in. Right? I, think, I think it's important to see how natural we look in the world that we are in. Scripture talks about how we live in the world, but we're not like the world. That's in John 17. And, and we know that this is not referring to our fashion choices or what we eat or what holidays we celebrate necessarily but it's how we think. It's how we make the decisions that we make. It's how we evaluate things or where our priorities are. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So when I am thinking, are my priorities and values the same as the society around me? Right? Am I comfortable here? Do my choices look the same? Do I act like I belong here? I've been redeemed, but am I living a redeemed life, right? Am I living in response to the incredible value that God put upon my life when he sent his son to that cross? And Peter, he gives us this interesting guideline to help us sort of answer that question, to give us a guideline to indicate how we are to live. And it's an ancient principle, an ancient guideline that, again, is embedded all throughout Scripture. And we find it in a line when he directs the Christians to live out your time here in reverent fear. Reverent fear. Now, if there was ever a biblical concept that could possibly be met with resistance, um, the idea of fearing God has got to be pretty high up there. I don't know. I live out our time here in reverent fear. It sounds a little bit suspicious to me. And perhaps for you, the phrase fearing God conjures up an image of like someone cringing before an angry deity who's waiting for his chance to strike humans with lightning bolts or something like that. But in scripture, the fear of the Lord is almost always associated not with lightning bolts striking people, but with very positive things. 
So we're going to turn just to the book of Proverbs for a moment because Proverbs is filled with one-liner principles to help us flesh out what it actually means to fear God. Okay, here I go. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.26, he who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it'll be a refuge. Chapter 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. 1516, better a little fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Proverbs 16:6, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. And Proverbs 22, 4, humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth, honor, and life. I mean, those things don't seem so bad to me. Another verse that I think sums this all up in Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. In the Bible, there are over 300, or maybe it is 300. I don't know. You can Google that later. There are 300-ish verses that talk about the fear of the Lord. And it is quite clear that fearing God is in our best interest. If there was ever a place for fear in life, in fact, the only place for fear in our lives should be when we fear God. Fearing God produces healthy results, and this is what makes it different from any other kind of fear. Now, to get into like a slightly teachy zone here, I have some breaking news for everyone. But the Bible was not originally written in English. I know. It's devastating. In fact, there are several languages that make up the Bible. And in our English uh, language and in our translation, when we read the Bible, there's one word for fear that's used in every verse. Um, But in the original languages, there are different words for fear that mean different things. You're following me so far? So, for example... And some famous verses, like 2 Timothy 1.7, there's a verse that says, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Or perhaps in one of my favorite uh, verses is, perfect love casts out fear. Now, this word fear means to experience alarm, fright, or terror. So this is the kind of fear we feel when a cougar is chasing us. Right? This is the type of fear that produces anxiety that keeps us up at night. Right? This is the kind of fear um, when we're afraid that something is bad, bad is going to happen to us. And we encounter this type of fear every single day. Right? This is the same fail, fear, blah, blah, blah. The same fear we feel when we're worried that we're not raising our kids right. Or um, when we're afraid of growing old or afraid our car won't keep us safe or afraid of being alone or um, any of those things. It's alarm. It's fright. It's terror. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to the word fear used in the phrase, the fear of the Lord or reverent fear, this word has to do with recognizing the power of something. It has to do with feeling awe towards something and having respect for it. In the second version of the verse on the screen that I read, 
And instead of the phrase, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, the other translation says, live out your time with the highest respect for God. That sounds like something I might be a little more interested in. Right? Perhaps I'm interested in being a house, if you will, that has the highest respect for its creator. Another uh, theologian I read uh, while preparing for this explained that fearing the Lord means to deeply love and to deeply respect at the same time. I love that, to deeply love and to deeply respect at the same time. And that makes sense to me because when we really love someone, we respect them. And on the other hand, if we don't love someone or if we don't respect someone, we don't love them. And this is a relationship principle across the board, right? In a marriage, if there is no respect, there is no love. In a family unit, if there's no respect, there's no love. My eight-year-old asked me yesterday how old he has to be before he's allowed to date. Um, to which I said 35, which is my age. Um, no, and uh, anyway, so that threw me off a little bit. Anyways, say hypothetically one day, in theory, I do allow my children to date. I will be reminding them that if they do not respect you, they do not love you. Because love and respect go hand in hand. So when we love God above all else, and when we deeply respect him above all else, then we are living in the fear of the Lord. Right? The fear of the Lord is not the opposite of love. It is the result of a very pure love. And it makes all the other types of fears pale in comparison. And we see this in the letter that Peter wrote. Um, So Peter had been living in in Rome at the time that I mentioned earlier. And he was living during the reign of Nero. And for any history geeks out there, Nero was a psychopath. So that's not great uh, as a leader. And there were very real persecutions of Christians taking place. Nero uh, blamed the Christians for a lot of things. He basically thought that anything that ever went wrong was the Christians' fault. And... uh, I mean, there's nothing like the threat of death to really put life into perspective. Um, I don't know that very well because I live in a very blessed society where the threat of death is not extremely common in my world, especially not for my faith. Um, But Peter is writing to a group of Christians who have some very real, very obvious, very legitimate things to fear. Right? He's writing to a group of Christians who are clearly outsiders in the world they find themselves in, but also living under the threat of torture and death including Peter himself. And knowing this, as he's contemplating and praying and writing this letter, he decides, okay, what I need to do is to remind these people of the price that God paid for their salvation. What I need to do is remind them of their redemption. I need to remind them that Jesus already shed his blood so that their lives and their conduct would be different. And he encourages them, okay, don't fear what man can do to you. Don't have the highest respect to the people who are after you. Don't fear the threats of the people. But he says, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. And it's like Peter is saying, hey, guys, since you know you were redeemed from bad conduct, from a totally futile way of living, since you know you were redeemed from the actions and and decisions that separated you from God, 
since you know you were redeemed from these things by the precious blood of Jesus, then if you're going to be wary of anything, be wary of not conducting yourself in a way that shows that his sacrifice, that his blood shed was not precious to you. He says, careful not to conduct yourself as though the price he paid was not precious. And this really started, I don't know, a tug or inside my own soul. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, during those times of reflections or evaluating how comfortable we feel in our world that when we're reflecting and if we're realizing that we are making decisions in life that show that our hope is in money or success or status or skills or reputation rather than God, maybe we should be wary of that. That shouldn't matter to us. That should get us thinking. Right? Maybe when things aren't going so great and we're trying to find comfort or, or solace or escape and we keep turning to, I don't know, pornography or gossip or online shopping or Reese's peanut butter cups, I don't care what it is. When we turn to all these things instead of God, that should concern us. In essence, perhaps we should fear becoming arrogant or proud or self-sufficient or any conduct that is causing us to be separated from our God, from his goodness, from his truth, from his clarity, from his direction, from his healing, from his protection, from his love. Jesus touches on this himself in Matthew 20 when he says, hey, if your eye is causing you to sin, you should just go ahead and pluck it out. <laughs> now, we know that he didn't literally mean this. Uh, and we do not promote Christians dismembering themselves here. Uh, but, but Jesus was giving us a very strong picture of the convictions we have in regards to how we should be living our lives. Right? Sin or um, the things that separate us from God they shouldn't be taken lightly. But I know this easily gets so confusing, especially in an amazing church like ours, because we're all about grace, right? We want any person to walk in here anytime and feel loved and accepted. We want you to feel okay and welcome and part of the family, no matter what your struggle. Right? Grace we commonly define as undeserved favor. Grace is the basis for our faith. God rescued us. He bought up those ugly houses because he is gracious. Grace cannot be earned. It is not behavior dependent. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work. So although we cannot earn grace with our behavior, it doesn't mean our behaviors aren't important. Where our actions don't save us. The good things we do do not equate a ticket to heaven. But our actions and what we do with what we have during our time here on earth, they will be judged by God one day. We're saved by faith, judged by our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So our works and our conduct and the things we do, they will be judged by God one day, not to determine our eternal destiny, 
but to determine what we take with us into that next phase, into the phase of the heavenly realm, into the phase when God redeems earth and makes a new heaven and earth and what we bring into that life. And the good news is, as Peter uh, makes sure is clear, is that God is impartial. Right? He judges fairly. He cannot be swayed or bribed or impressed. But what we do in this life, the, the decisions we make, how we conduct ourselves, they will be evaluated by God one day. And this can be both exciting or sobering, sort of depending where you're at at the moment. A few weeks ago, this was super sobering to me. I was like, oh, dear Lord. But now, honestly, I find this more motivating than ever. Because it means that the things that I do that are good and are right and are just, whether they are ever recognized by another human being or not, it means they do not go to waste. They are not for nothing. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart for Lord and not for people, because you know you will receive an inheritance as a reward. And what I do and the decisions I make and the conduct um, that I act out in, that sentence did not work. How I live my life, how we live our lives, the secret is to be guided by the fear of the Lord. Our guideline is the fear of the Lord. Right, so this means this month, when I'm doing my taxes, oh my goodness, do I have respect for the God who sees everything? When I'm interacting with my spouse or my annoying neighbor, am I aware that I am interacting with a son or daughter that God loves deeply and cares deeply about. Right? When I am um, faced with a choice to forgive someone, do I remember what it costs our amazing God to forgive me? I was an ugly house, and I was bought back, and I was beautified and made new, and now I will live with the highest respect and the deepest love for my Creator. Did you get my text, Jess? This is how, yeah. That is uh, how subtle I am here, guys. I'm inviting the worship team back up. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. Our conduct counts. And we stay motivated to live in a way that is pleasing to God when our fear is in the right place. We stay convicted and empowered to live out a life that is pleasing to him when he, we respect him and love him above anything else. Because when our view of his bigness and his importance diminishes, when our picture of how powerful he is diminishes, that's when we begin to distance ourselves from the life-giving blessing that comes with the fear of the Lord. And church, we can't afford that. <laughs> As Christians, we are lucky enough that we aren't currently being sentenced to death or tortured here. Praise you, Jesus. But I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like the climate is getting less and less welcoming out there. <laughs> Choosing to follow Jesus, if it hasn't already, it's, it's starting to have a cost. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if that's in context of a relationship or a job, status, definitely comfort. But we won't be able to endure that cost 
if our highest respect is for men and women and people, we won't be able to endure that cost to stay faithful if our fear is in the wrong place. Right? If we fear people above all else, we will crumble. We will crumble when adversity comes. But if we fear God above all else, if our highest respect and our deepest love is for our God, we will not be shaken. I'm gonna read um, one more verse over you guys and then we're gonna pray and do one more worship song. And this verse is Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. I just think for so many of us, our fear has been misplaced and it has not benefited us at all. I think for so many of us, whether intentionally, but probably not intentionally, we have let our highest respect and our deepest love be held by something other than our good God. And when that is out of line, everything else that follows is out of line. But when, when our fear for God, when our respect, when our awe, when our honor of Him, when that is at the top, everything else starts falling into place. All the other fears, all the other anxieties, they start falling into place below him, where they belong. I'm gonna invite you guys to stand for a moment. We're gonna sing a song. Um, yeah, we're just gonna sing a song and just give space for God to do what he wants to do in our hearts. I'm gonna awkwardly linger at the front for anyone who would like prayer. Feel free to come forward. But I just wanna take this time to allow God just to rearrange some things. Does that make sense? To rearrange some things. Right now, God, I just ask that your presence would do what only your presence can do. I can fix nothing. I can convict no one. I am terrible at that. But God, I know that your presence can rearrange things in our spirits and in our souls. And right now, God, on behalf of anyone who agrees with me, I just repent for letting my fear of anything other than you for getting out of hand. I am sorry that I've had higher respect for what people think of me. I'm sorry that my respect for my own future has gotten higher than you. I'm sorry that my respect for money has gotten higher than you or, or any sort of vanity thing. I am sorry for, for letting things overwhelm me that pale in comparison to who you are. That the most powerful thing is you. That the greatest thing is you. That the most good and pure thing is you. And God, would you retake that position in our lives and in our church? Would you retake the position of, of the throne, the place of king? You are good and you love us and you are our savior and our friend, but you are our king. And God, as you reorient things in our spirits, just like things might need to get reoriented in our bodies sometime, would health and healing just begin to flow again into your people?
So church, let's just take these next few minutes and let's just really put him back on the throne in our lives. Thanks for tuning in today. Each week, we gather in cities across our region and online to explore the truth of freedom available to all in the message of Jesus Christ. To find a gathering near you or to find out more, head to c3church.ca.